0: myself, in this study, and in preparation for this, and uh, I want to share those things with you. So 1 Timothy 3.15, the Bible says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to be a by in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Everybody's frantically turning. Did I say the wrong passage? Okay, I heard a bunch of like papers, and I thought, I hope I didn't mess you up. Sometimes you say 1 Timothy the first time, and then 2 Timothy the second time, or vice versa, and then everybody's scrambling. So I got the right verse. The key phrase in that verse is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And I want to remind you, this is scripture here, telling you that the church God established the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. And that means that this is part of his work of providentially preserving his word. It's done through his church. It has been done through his churches through the generations since the time of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can open the word together. I thank you that we can be together on this Wednesday night. And I thank you for your word and the confidence that we can have in it after all these years. It has not eroded. It has not decayed. Uh, we have the authoritative word of God. And it instructs us for life. And thank you that you've given that to us. And I pray that we would treasure it, Lord. That we would hold it as a treasure. A delight in it. And Lord, that we wouldn't be so fierce in defending a position that we fail to honor the Word of God that we hold in our hands and look to it for instruction. I pray that you would help us as we do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've set out to teach you the issues that have led to controversy over Bible versions and translations. I don't apologize. I don't make any bones about my commitment to the exclusive use of of the King James version of the Bible. That's that's what we are committed to as a church. That's what we do uh, as a church, and we remain committed to that. And by the way, people will um, slander me other ways, otherwise, and say things about my position. But you're you're looking me in the eye. You're hearing me say this. That that's what we are committed to. That's what I am committed to. That's what our church is committed to. All right. So, um, whatever slanders there might be out there, there are slanders out there about that. Um, It's one of the unique qualities, and it's this way with any camp. Um, You know, along with this issue, I've also been looking into uh, a little more in depth into Calvinism, and it's pretty interesting uh, the different camps. Tribes of Calvinists. People think that Calvinism is just all one thing, but oh no. There are a variety of um, hyper-Calvinists and high Calvinists and moderate Calvinists and low Calvinists and, and on and on. Yeah. But it's unique in the King James only camp. Um, if I go and argue for exclusive use of King James, there are two parties that will hit me. One will hit me. Um, and want to engage and the other will hit me and want to crush. The one that hits me and wants to engage are those who use multiple modern versions. They hit hit me and want to engage. The one that hits me and wants to destroy are the ultra-Rugmanite, King James-only people that if you don't hold it the way they hold it, then you don't hold it at all. And that's the way they look at it. And for them, um, all the English, all the Hebrew, and all the Greek is a, a gone and passed into oblivion. And there is only the English Bible. That's all. And um, that, you know, <coughs> it's not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. It's as big a lie as any lie that's out. So, I am committed to the exclusive use of the King James in our ministry. I intend to teach you what I mean by that, and also what I do not mean by that. I want you to be better informed on this position, um, on the issue. I want you to know our position, and I want you to stand united. I want us as a church to stand united. And the unity of the church, you know, that's what we are charged That we are to endeavor to keep. God gifted it to us as a church. And uh, we are to endeavor to keep that unity. Too many King James only churches. Hold tenaciously to a position. That they do not understand. And um, that's unfortunate. The position is promoted. Often by sheer force of personality. uh, Brute force really. And built on false premises and bad logic, but not on the mind. And it's not a surprise that the young people who grow up in these churches, especially young men, if their faith survives intact, will leave that position and embrace modern, um, many, multiple versions as soon as they exit. I, I don't want that. I don't want that legacy. I don't want that for our church. We don't rely on bluff. We don't rely on bluster. We don't rely on brute force to <coughs> impose this position on you. We can hold our position in humility, in with calmness, and grace, and love. way, I'll let you in on a secret. All right? A mark of a... A position held in humility is that it is held with calmness. I right? Engage with people, and usually the ultra-requenite types, that lose their patience in a hot minute and just go full-on bombastic on you. That tells me they're not Holding their position in humility, whatsoever. There's no humility. Anymore. We can be confident that we're taking a biblical position on the issue of text and translation. Now, I've committed to the most thorough approach to this topic to date. We'll finish part one tonight by looking at our church's statement on God's Word, the Bible. In the next part segment, we'll consider the transmission of scripture throughout history, and give a biblical view of both the canon and of the manuscript traditions. The third section, we'll take a look at the debate over the text of scripture, and particularly at textual criticism, what it is, what it involves. In part four, we'll explain why we are not English-only preservationists. In part five, we'll give a biblical defense for the exclusive use of the King James Version. So, you all have a copy of our church's statement uh, for the Word of God, and uh, this is something that uh, we put a lot of time into preparing uh, as a church and uh, have worked through. And discussed and debated heavily, and I feel like we've got the right (coughs) words, the right scripture proofs, so I've been going through that as sort of a foundation for what we're teaching here. Let's read it. We believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. We believe that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, but that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We believe that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. We believe that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, life, and obedience. From me. We believe that the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. We believe that the authority of the Holy Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God alone, who himself is truth and the author of all Scripture, and therefore ought to be received and believed by men upon its own authority, because it is the very word of God. We believe that God's people and churches bear important witness and testimony to the truth of God's word, and that they have a sacred duty to bear that witness faithfully. We believe that the New Testament in Hebrew, known as the Masoretic Hebrew, and the New Testament in Greek, did I say New Testament first? Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek, known as the Textus Receptus, being immediately inspired by God, are kept pure in all ages by His singular care and providence. We believe that in Old Testament times, God used Israel as His particular agent of preservation, and that in this New Testament era, God uses His faithful churches as His agents of the We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. We believe that a faithful translation will have the correct textual authority, textus receptus only, the correct translational authority, formal equivalents, and the correct ecclesiastical authority, faithful New Testament churches, and that it will be accessible to the people of God in our modern age. We believe that the King James Version or authorized version of the English Bible is a true, faithful, and accurate translation which in our time has no equal among all the other English translations and that we can, without apology, hold it up and say, these are the words of God. By conviction, we will only use the King James Version of the Bible in all our teaching, preaching, and materials.
1: We believe that the
0: canon of Scripture was established by God and received by His churches, and therefore is not determined by any church council or by any edict of men. We believe that the canon of Scripture includes every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God and has been kept by His own singular care and providence. The canon of Scripture, therefore, is the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which contain the preserved word and words of God. We believe that the books commonly called the Apocrypha, along with all other extra-biblical texts, though they may claim to be equally inspired with the Bible, have been and must be rejected by the Church, not having been received by God's people, not showing evidence of divine inspiration, and not belonging to the received canon of Scripture. We believe that when faced with apparent contradictions in the Bible, it is the Christian's duty to faithfully uphold the principle that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore came from one mind, and to strive to harmonize between any apparently contradictory passages. Let God be true, but every man a liar. I went through the first five or six of these points, so I'm just going to run through very quickly the points that we made. Number one, we believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. That's a summary statement of all that we believe and will be laying out in detail in the rest of the statement. Um, only these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments Our scripture, nothing else. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and man is to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we are to concern ourselves with the whole counsel of God concerning all things, as is related to us in the Bible. Number two, we believe that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation but that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible came from one mind, the mind of God, and is therefore internally coherent, every part of it. It's therefore our duty to uncover the direct meaning God had for any text of Scripture. Number three, we believe that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and salvation Faith in life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Paul points to inspiration as the reason the Scriptures are able to make men wise. Because they come from the wise one. Jesus Christ is to us wisdom. Number four, we believe that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge faith, life, and obedience. Number five, we believe that the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, there are good and necessary consequences of course that come from Scripture and there may, may be several points of application that we might take from any passage of Scripture, but with any passage of Scripture, God has one intended meaning and it is our job To uncover that meaning, that's why expository preaching, I I hate to become like the evangelist for expository preaching, and I have good friends who argue with me because they, they think that there's a lot of dry, if it's expository, it's probably dry, and maybe it is. Maybe at least it's less entertaining, I should say, than other, because there's always, you know, like, When I was a kid, the the comics had uh, the family circus. Is The family circus still in the comics. It still shows up. All right, we got some that still see it. All right, so there's Billy, the boy, you know, and whenever his parents sent him to do anything, then you get that dotted line that makes circles all around the yard and memes all over the place. And and I don't know, like the, the guy who created the family circus found that that was a winner And so he used it over and over and over again. Probably once a month, one like that shows up in there. It's a winner because it's entertaining. I mean, back when I was a kid, way back long ago, pinball machines were popular. People would spend coins on pinball machines watching a marble bounce around. It's entertaining, no doubt about it. But the problem is that when you just get up and rant for a while, that's what you have to do. You have to entertain people. It's much better, much better to give people the word of God. And look, do we not enjoy when we read a passage and then it's opened up to us and we think about what this passage means? Why is it here? Why did God put it in the word of God? What does he have for us? Is that not enriching to our lives? Huh? I mean, honestly, you know, mac and cheese got me through college. But it's like the difference between a diet of mac and cheese and a diet of steak. All right? And if the price is the same, <coughs> unless you're my daughter, you're taking the steak, right? <laughs> you want the steak. Give me meat. We crave, need our bodies need meat. Our teeth want to chew meat. Your teeth were not made for chewing mac and cheese. <laughs> you don't even need teeth to chew mac and cheese. You've just gum it. But you want meat. We want meat. We could start like a chant. Like a, we could march around the auditorium. We want meat. All right. This is this is what God intended that we would be opening his word to his people. Now, there might be several methods for interpreting a passage or examining it in order to uncover the meaning of the passage. And so, if you listen to four or five preachers, you know, it can be entertaining sometimes. I suppose to have a conference where you assign one chapter and everybody is supposed to preach it. You would, pardon me, you would get some, it would be interesting, to hear the differences, Uh, for sure. There would be differences, right? Because everyone has different perspectives, but there is only one infallible rule of interpretation, and that is scripture itself. In other words, God has revealed himself and his mind comprehensively in scripture, not exhaustively because you can't exhaust an infinite mind. But comprehensively, God has given us everything that we need to know about himself. Number six, we believe that the authority of the Holy Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church. But wholly upon God alone, who himself is truth and the author of all scripture, and therefore ought to be received and believed by men upon its own authority, because it is the very word of God. Now, textual criticism argues that the text of Scripture has been corrupted and must be restored. Right? And that means, understand, that means that for centuries, Christians did not have the pure word of God. And that it is up to scholarship provide that pure word. Alright, so I'll give you a case in point. Mm-hmm. Nestle Allen gives a new addition to their critical text, which is the primary critical text today. And the Nestle Allen 28, from about a few years ago, Nestle Allen 29 is coming out soon. I believe it's 29. I might be throwing bummer in numbers, but it's 28 or 29. Um, but I believe it's 29. And uh, I just saw this yesterday that the newest edition of the Nestle Allen text will have 200 changes in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Acts alone. (laughs) Those three books, 200 changes. It makes one wonder will scholarship ever come to a point where they say, We have it? we have the words now, nailed down. Because I don't think they will. Because if they do, what are they going to do for a living? Huh? I mean, they're getting paid to do this. If you were getting paid to do it, you would find them too, right? I mean, look, I know that that's offensive. For me to say that is offensive to a lot of people. But understand what I'm saying here, that it's hard not to be suspicious, and it's hard, honestly, to take it seriously when we come up with this amount of change. Even one or two, I think, we'd be concerned about. But 203 books, that's a serious thing. I think that we need to be a little more critical before we accept such a thing. The Bible does teach that God keeps his word and that his people receive it and believe it. This is taught consistently in the word of God. And the Bible describes the process of preservation in terms of faithful believers receiving the word of God. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, the apostle Peter said. They received the word with all readiness of mind, as Paul said of the believers in Acts, or Luke said, the the believers in Berea. When you received received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So Paul commended the church in Thessalonica. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, 1 John 5 and verse 9. So that brings us then to the seventh point. We believe that God's people and churches bear important witness and testimony to the truth of God's word and that they have a sacred duty to bear that witness faithfully. This is what Paul means when he identifies the New Testament church as the pillar and ground of the truth. God's people and churches bear important witness and testimony to the truth of God's word. Okay? The church Is the pillar and ground of the truth. As we saw in verse Timothy 3.15. You probably still have that open right now. God establishes the truth. God's churches are witnesses of the truth. Now this is what Jesus commissioned his disciples to be. From the time of his resurrection. Until he ascended to heaven. And this is the commission that has been passed down to us. That we are to be witnesses, witnesses to the truth of God's word, his testimony. Remember what Jesus said was characteristic of his sheep? John 10, verse 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Okay, so understand that this is characteristic of God's people, that we Hear the word of God. We receive it. We recognize it. We love it. We embrace it. We let it dwell in us richly. God's people recognize the voice of God in the Word of God. Yeah, it's the same thing. When I was a kid, my mom would you know call on the phone or something, and uh, you know I would answer. And I'd use a fake voice or something. I could never fool my mom. Because she knew my voice. She knew it. Even when it was fake. She knew. I would try to kid her. She would know. You, You as a believer. You are attuned to know the voice of God. So we recognize the voice of the word of God. So that when the church gives its testimony. the authenticity of Scripture that gives vital support to the authentic Word of God. Number eight, we believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew, known as the Masoretic Hebrew, and the New Testament in Greek, known as the Textus Receptus, being immediately inspired by God, are kept pure in all ages by His singular care and providence. Now, the, the word immediately in that part of our statement, is vital for us to understand on this issue. Because, all right, I have publicly stated that the King James Version is not inspired, all right? And that's offensive to a lot of King James-only people, to say it's not inspired. When people say that the King James is inspired, they mean that God wrote it. That just as God gave the original words in Hebrew and Greek, He gave the words of the English. That's what they mean. Now, people have taken that to mean that I don't believe that the King James, that the King James Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, there's a world of difference between saying that the King James Version is the inspired Word of God and saying that the King James is inspired. It's a huge difference. If if you don't understand it, we can talk about it later on. I can explain it to you. The difference. But I'm going to explain it to you right now as well. Okay? I want you to understand this. The word immediately. Okay? Look at that eighth statement again. Okay? We say in it the word immediately. We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew, known as the Masoretic Hebrew, and the New Testament in Greek, known as the Textus Receptus, being immediately inspired by God, okay? So, immediately is vital for us in understanding this issue. We might be able to acknowledge that the English of the King James is immediately inspired, okay? There's a difference between immediately and immediately, okay? There's um, mediation, which involves a go-between, that there's mediation means that there's someone between you and the target, okay? Um, Media, media is referring to a third party that delivers you the news of the day, okay? So all the news of the day is funneled into the media who decides what news is important for you to hear and what you need to know about that news, they boil down an event that probably has been taking shape for a long time, and they boil it into about 15 seconds of delivery time. And uh, that's media, all right? Immediate means that there's no mediator. So when we say that the Hebrew and Greek are immediately inspired by God, we mean that God directly inspired it. That, as 2 Peter says it, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what we mean. God was giving the words. He didn't, there's no second giving the words, no third giving of the words. There's no downstream. He doesn't need to give the words again because he promised to keep the words that he gave. Okay. So we are saying then that yes, the King James absolutely is immediately inspired. So in this sense, that it is a faithful, true translation of of the inspired words of God, and therefore it contains the authority of the inspired words of God. Okay? Because it faithfully represents those words. Okay? Uh, Another way of saying this, this is that the Hebrew and Greek were directly inspired and that the inspiration of the King James is derived from the authority of the Greek and Hebrew words. Okay? Now, you know, some, I know some don't like that. Okay? And some of it is because we look at it and say, Well, I don't know Hebrew and I don't know Greek. And you don't have to. You don't have to. We don't have to. We can be confident that we have a faithful translation of the inspired words of God. We can be confident in that. Absolutely. <clears throat> but we can also say the same thing for any Bible in any language that faithfully translates the Hebrew and Greek. We can say the same for them. There are some who want to argue that the King James exclusively is the inspired word of God and that the English of the King James was immediately inspired by God, and that would mean that there was a re inspiration of the Bible we can't say that. We don't have any biblical grounds for saying such a thing. The Bible teaches no such thing. Rather, inspiration rests with the words God immediately inspired, which are found in the writings of Scripture. That's what God promised was inspired. Paul said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The, the, Greek, there, the Greek phrase is three words. the theamistos. Theopneustos is a predicate adjective. Its inspiration describes or renames even the graphe. Um, Alright? That's that's what... The graphe is the noun and theopneustos, which is why is given by, is inserted in there, but it's also italicized in this. Okay? Pasa, all, Raphae, the writings, okay? All the writings of Scripture are inspired, given by inspiration of God. Theopneosos, breathe out by God through the mouth of His men, His people, the holy men of God, who spake as they were with by the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> we need to distinguish between the words Jesus and the apostles and the characters in the Bible spoke in their lifetimes, And the written record of those words, because the inspired words, the words God kept, are the written record of their words. When we come to places in the Gospels, for example, the Gospels are a prime example of this, where you'll have three or four different accounts of Jesus speaking the same thing, but it will be different words. And you might say, "Well, which ones are the words he actually said?" That's not the way we're to approach it. Each one of those accounts gives the inspired record of what Jesus said. Each one. So that if Matthew differs from Luke, both Matthew and Luke are equally inspired. Their words are the words of God. Our job, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is to harmonize between the two accounts of what Jesus said there. We know that the inspired words are the written words, the written record of God's word. The mark that distinguishes a word as an inspired word is that that word has been preserved. God promised to keep the words he gave. Preservation of a word indicates that this word is an inspired word of God. And the two work in tandem, inspiration and preservation. Someone said inspiration and preservation are twins. It's very true. They work together. They're co-laborers here to deliver us the word, the authentic words of God. God breathed the words he kept. And God kept the words he breathed. That's a really simple thing that we should all get in our heads. God breathed the words he kept. And God kept the words he breathed. Okay? Both statements are equally true. And so we join the historic view of churches throughout history who declared unequivocally that the words immediately inspired by God are kept here in all ages by his singular care and providence. Plenty of places in the Bible would make this abundantly clear. God has always worked through men to keep his word. In the time of the Old Testament, God entrusted the care of his word to the nation of Israel. Now, this is what the Bible teaches us. I'm not making this up. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us. Romans chapter, I believe, Romans chapter 3. Now, verses 1 and 2. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. You want to find it? You can see what I'm talking about. Because Paul clearly tells us that the safekeeping, the preservation of the Old Testament was committed to the nation of Israel. And of course, beyond that day, into ours, now the commitment and the safekeeping of the word of God has been committed to the church. Alright? Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, but if I tarry long, I'm sorry, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Those oracles are referring to the prophetic announcements of Of the word of God. Alright. The Old Testament is often in the Bible. Described as the law and the prophets. That is the sum of the entire Bible. Alright. The law and the prophets. And And those pronouncements are the oracles of God. And Paul is saying that the advantage that the Jews had was this that they had the blessing of keeping the words of God. That's what he's saying there. So they were the ones that God used to preserve his word. In this New Testament era, God has entrusted the care of his word to his churches. And we've already read this and referred to it a number of times, but 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, here's how I believe this process has worked through the years. That over the years since the time of Christ, faithful believers have gathered around the word of God, opened it, proclaimed it, Received it, believed it, treasured it, lived by it, valued every word. Every word. All right? So, this is, it's a simple process, but let me point it out to you. That, on a weekly basis, as we open the Word of God together, we are participating in the work of preserving the Word of God. Again, not to harp on it, I guess my pet hobby horse there. But that's why expository preaching matters. Verse by verse, through the Word of God. That's how the Word of God is passed from generation to generation, a legacy, a heritage. Of it. I don't know about you, but I shudder, I cringe to think that there would be whole parts of the Bible that we would never look at. Should the Lord tarry and give me another um, 18 or so years before the end of my ministry, I hope to get to all of it, or as much of it as God will allow. But this is, look, you reading the Bible, memorizing the Word of God, studying it for yourself, that's part of the process of receiving, of of preserving the Word of God. God doesn't do these things through mystical means. He does these things through faithful believers, receiving the Word and passing it down to the next generation. Our Lord has promised that the word would always be established. Matthew 5.18 For verily I say unto you till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And in fact, God has set his unchangeable word over against the flattering words, the vain words of men, in order to prove that he will always keep us by keeping this word. Uh, Psalm 12 Forms of chiasma. Um, the center of that chiasma is verse 5 For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Alright? <clears throat> now the verses on both sides of that. The threat against the people of God are the vain words of men. Verse 2, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that to speaketh proud things, who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And in that fifth verse, God promises to preserve his people. And then the next verse, which pairs with the flattering words of wicked men, Verse six: The words of the Lord are pure words, as a, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God is promising that His words are not vain words. He pledges to keep His people, and the way He's going to is by keeping His word. His word, promise keep people is a sure word, is, is, is a certain word. Number nine, we believe that in Old Testament times, God used Israel as his particular agent of preservation, and that in this New Testament era, God uses his faithful churches as his agents of the same. We looked at um, that already, so let's go to number ten. We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. All right. Now, this is a point. By the way, it's historic doctrine. This is not something we just made up. Much of the language in this statement of faith has come from the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Um, so that tells you these this is long established um, conviction among God's churches. Right? And this is an important point. The reason we're not all required to learn Hebrew and Greek is because of Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth. Look look at with me at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 12. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 12. Because Paul gives instruction here about the words, the translated word of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 12. Now, brethren. If I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, listen to this, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? For if the trumpet given a certain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Now this is the point Paul wants to make with that illustration. So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known, be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Okay? So what Paul is saying there is that we are to teach in the common language of the people. All right? and that his word also is to be translated into the common language, the vulgar tongue of the people. That's what the Bible says. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Okay? So Paul's instruction there is that we're not going to, we're not to come in and speak gibberish, and we're not supposed to, you know, that I mean for many years it was controversial. In fact, it um, <coughs> the trigger the Protestant Reformation was the mass that was done in Latin. Alright, and so that only the scholars could understand it, and of course the Bible was only in Latin for many years, and so only the educated and the wealthy would have access to it. But God teaches that the word of God is to be in the vulgar tongue of the people. That's what he teaches. Not only does this instruction of Paul's permit faithful translation into the common language, it, in fact, requires it. And in fact, it would be a primary argument for making the Bible as accessible to the common man, to what William Tyndale referred to as the plowboy, as it is to the educator. Unless the Bible is translated into the heart language of a people, it is impossible that it would penetrate their hearts. And this is not just true here in America, but it is true in any foreign field, anywhere in the world. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Romans ten verses fourteen seventeen. How then shall they come in him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Number 11, we believe that a faithful translation will have the correct textual authority, that is, textus receptus only, the correct translational authority, that is, formal equivalence, and the correct ecclesiastical authority, that is, faithful New Testament, and that it will be accessible to the people of God in our modern age. I'm going to revisit that in future lessons. Number 12, we believe that the King James Version or authorized version of the English Bible is a true, faithful, and accurate translation which in our time has no equal among all the other English translations and that we can without apology hold it up and say these are the words of God by conviction we will only use the King James version of the Bible in all our teaching, preaching, and materials. Now, the three things that we said—ecclesiastical authority, that is, a church Bible; uh, formal equivalence, that's a word-for-word translation; and uh, textual authority, that is, the Textus Receptus being translated and the Hebrew Masoretic—is um, the reason we can say that we have the combination of those things I believe absolutely that there must be a church Bible that the churches must receive and accept a translation of the Bible. Now, we are absolutely certain that the churches have accepted the King James Bible. Despite the fact that more and more people are moving away from it and leaving it, still it is the last Bible that is truly a church Bible. And that's a big deal. Number 13, we believe that the canon of Scripture was established by God and received by His churches, and therefore is not determined by any church council or by any edict of men. This depends so much on what I have argued previously. We included this in our statement because we believe it is one of the most overlooked elements of the translation debate. Almost universally, God's people are in agreement as to the canon of Scripture. There's almost... There's all kinds of debate about translations and versions of the Bible, but there is almost no debate about the canon of Scripture. Whether or not a person believes in the value of textual criticism, nobody challenges the authenticity of a book of the Bible. And yet the Bible says nothing about its own canon, or which books belong to the canon, or which extra-biblical texts like the Apocrypha do not belong. The Bible has to be our authority in these things, so we have to go with what the Bible promises, not with what Christians have agreed to regarding uh, or without biblical authority. So the Bible nowhere speaks of a canon of books. The Bible only speaks of words. Doesn't speak of chapters, doesn't speak of verses only speaks of words the bible teaches a canonicity of words not of chapters or verses or books the verses and chapters and books are the collections of those words and thus they are canon but they are not they're canon because they contain the words we shouldn't act as if the books are canonized You know, the words, though, they are up for grabs. The words are not up for grabs. And the church councils did not determine or establish the canon of Scripture, but rather they recognized and confirmed what the churches had received. I came across this. I told you I've been studying this a good bit. And while my um, kids are candy selling my kid, this I'm down to one now, Uh, But uh, anyway, I didn't lose my other kids, just I don't have to sell candy with them anymore. Uh, But anyway, uh, and while Mitchell was selling candy, and I'm reading um, Norman Geisler and William Minx's book, From God to Us, and I came across this that I thought was just wonderful. Thus, the process of canonization was at work from the very beginning the first churches were exhorted to select only the authentic apostolic writings. When a book was verified as authentic, either by signature or by apostolic envoy, it was officially read to the church and then circulated among other churches. Collections of these apostolic writings began to take form in apostolic times. By the end of the first century, all 27 New Testament books were written and received by the churches. The canon was complete, and all the books were recognized by believers somewhere. Because of the multiplicity of false writings and the lack of immediate access to the conditions related to the initial acceptance of a book, the debate about the canon continued for several centuries until the Church Universal finally recognized the canonicity of the 27 books of the New Testament. It's really a wonderful accounting. And by the way, they did a great job of laying the groundwork for that statement, showing how from the very beginning, believers were receiving the words, receiving the letters and the Gospels, and passing them among themselves, and carefully preserving. Now, Daniel Wallace is the premier textual critic of our day. And I am also taking the course of his on textual criticism right now. And Daniel Wallace made this statement. He said um, that it took uh, several centuries for there to develop a canon consciousness. So in other words, his idea was that a letter came from Paul and believers scrambled to copy it out As fast as they could. And send it to other places. And so mistakes were made. And so on. And he believes that the initial early carelessness of believers. Was because they were not conscious of the fact. That they were holding the word of God. That's about as false a notion as any I've ever heard. Because again. All the things that I've said to you. God's people hear his voice. In his word. They recognize it, they know it, they safeguarded it. Yes, absolutely, we know they made copies and passed them around to the other churches. The Apostle John, in his book of Revelation, at the very beginning, he commands that his book is to be passed around to the seven churches in Asia. Don't think that they took the one copy that he wrote and passed it from church to church. They made copies of it, and they passed it around. And it was delivered to each of those churches. They were careful with the words. That's the point. We have no reason to think that believers did not value, treasure, or even understand that they were holding the word of God.